welcome to an informed live radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager, coming to you from the state of Washington here. This is the first hour of our show. We now have two hours. This first hour is proudly sponsored by Children's Health Defense. And we're using this hour to get to know exactly what Children's Health Defense is, get to know the people that make Children's Health Defense the, the great organization that it is, and to keep you up to date you know, on some of the work they're doing. They, they do a lot of education, but they also do a lot of legal work trying to improve safety in this world um, for the next generation coming along for our kids. Today's special guest is a, actually a very good friend of mine. Um, his name is Dr. James Lyons Weiler, but the world knows him as Jack or Dr. Jack. And, and instead of giving a big old long bio, I'm gonna just bring Jack on because I want him to tell you the story of Jack's journey. So hi, Jack. Hi, Bernadette. I always love it when my friends call me and ask me to talk about myself. It's my favorite topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah well you know it, it's it's really though important for people to understand you know the right now a lot of voices that are critical of vaccines that are working for safety reform get somewhat bashed in mainstream media so i think it's important for people to get to know us as human beings yeah. and get to know our journeys and you know so Let's just, you know, tell people, start with like you went off and you want to be a scientist. So you got your PhD and off you went. Take it from there. <laughs> well, during the course of acquiring my PhD, I traveled from state to state, graduate school to graduate school. And uh, my son, Ben, was born when we were at Penn State University. And we told the, the nurses uh, that we did not care to have vaccines on the first day, that we would catch up later, because we had a, you know, abundance of caution approach. It wasn't a no. And it also wasn't, we weren't looked at like we had three heads, you know. It was, okay, no problem. And so then uh, we moved to Connecticut for a while. There's a graduate school there I was part of. And I attended, the, you know, classes and did research there and, his, as the months came and went, uh, and his well child visits came and went, we said, "Yeah, that's fine. We just like not. We'd like not to have to do, you know, more than a couple at a time." So we spaced them out for for my son Ben. Uh, it, it wasn't because we were really concerned of anything. It's just the possibility of the main, remote possibility. We thought that there would be a problem with neural neural development, um, and for the most part, I put it out of my mind. Uh, we, we went to um, Massachusetts, after, well, Nevada. We uh, No, sorry, Nevada was before that. We, <laughs> we went to uh, my, um, we went to Massachusetts and as fa I was faculty member at the University of Massachusetts. And uh, we had no problem there with doctors, pedi the pediatrician that we had, no problem if we want to space them out. And, and the same thing went on when we moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it wasn't until really 2015 when we started hearing, by then my sons were, you know, older. Um, we started hearing that doctors started really harassing patients over whether they were getting their vaccines on time, all of their vaccines on time. And the, the parents were, you know, this, why is it so important that we do it? every vaccine on the schedule and this kind of thing. And so I was absolutely um, not 
aware of any of the vaccine risks that we now have better evidence for. And so much so that I used to, uh, you know, get into it a little bit with my sister who was born again Christian. And, uh, you know, I shouldn't have pushed. She didn't listen to me, right? And that's fine. We still loved each other. It wasn't a deal breaker in relationships back then. Um, but I did miss out on a few family events. It wasn't my call that I that we weren't going to get together. It was somebody else's call, some the other parent, if you will, uh, that didn't want to visit because certain children were not vaccinated. And then, you know, that I, I I argued about it, but it was something. You know, I wanted to be with my sister. I wanted the kids to know each other. So th there was a sadness there, but it was, uh, you know, what are you going to do kind of situation. And I had. Um, uh, been working as a research scientist at the University of Pittsburgh for about 10 years. And that gig came to a close. And I decided to write a book. And the first book that I, it was 2014, I wanted to write a book on the Ebola outbreak that was going on in 2014. And that's the first time that I really found that there was something wrong with the CDC. I had created, as a research scientist, uh, the Ebola Rapid Assay Develop Consortium. This, you know, the Ebola Rapid Assay Development Consortium tied together the, the inklings, the very beginnings of IPAC. Uh, and let's see, uh, the University of Pennsylvania, uh, no, sorry, Penn State University, um, U University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, there was the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, we had a uh, we had a great consortium of people that were computational biologists. And the idea that I had was, well, just like PCR, maybe we could actually create um, um, a test for Ebola in saliva that would allow us to amplify the signal using a molecular chain reaction. So it was it was a blank slate. Nobody had thought of this at all using proteins because PCR is done with nucleic acids and with polymerase. But this was, there's a GP protein on the surface of Ebola. Maybe, maybe Klaus, at, what was his last name? Um, I forget his last name now. Uh, but anyway, maybe UIUC with their very supercomputer could model uh, the molecular configuration of a new protein that doesn't exist on the planet, that we would use computers to model and create a protein that would actually... Uh, not only bind to the GP protein, but that binding would then flip a switch on the protein that was binding. And, and there was a specific biochemical reaction I was looking for, such that if we did this in on an assay, that, that flip of the switch could then open up a molecular cage and release another molecule that would flip the switch on the next one and that would release two molecules. So we'd have an explosion, a polymer, uh, a, not a, it's not polymerase, but a, but a chain reaction. And the idea was a, um, a wick-based saliva. So you'd come through the airport, they'd hand you a bag and the bag would be a bottle, a vial with a wick sticking out of it. You put it in your mouth and then you put it back in the bag and you seal it and you hand it back to the person. So it would change color in just an instant. If you're pink, you go over here. If you're white, you go over there. And so we had we brought it to the point where we had a prototype, uh, an idea. We were ready to make a prototype. 
And we had uh, a biotechnology company in Pennsylvania that was ready to make this prototype. And we, I call it, the, felt, the job fell to me as the organizer of the consortium to call the CDC and say, because I don't have a BSL-4 laboratory in my basement, okay? <laughs> to <laughs> you say, don't. If, you know, <laughs> if, if we send you guys a collection of these prototypes, would you test them for us using Ebola proteins from samples that are, test, that are tested positive in your BSL-4 mm -hmm. laboratory? And the answer was, no, we won't do it. It was like blunt. And it was funny because the guy that I talked to, his name was Stuart Nichols. He had published, he, his, his, his paper was the one that inspired me because he showed that the amount of Ebola vi virus in the, in the blood, the body viremia was well matched by the amount of virus in the saliva. And so I was very excited that, wow, we could, it correlated very well. And, and I had this great, you know, gee whiz idea of a prototype and a new kind of molecular chain reaction. And um, I thought they would be like, Chris is going to be fantastic. Oh my gosh, if this works, we can do airport screening and we can stop people. And, and when he said no, I said, why not? And he said, because we have our own test. Uh-oh. And we I saw said, that happen. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I go said, ahead. <laughs> I said, what do you mean you have your own test? He goes, no, we have our own test. I said, but yours is a PCR test, right? He goes, yes. I said, and as I understand your protocol, it requires a blood draw, right? He said, yes. I said, so you're really going to sit there and you're going to stick needles in people that are coming from West African countries or that are traveling from countries near those countries. And you're, and they may have Ebola and you're going to jab them with a, ne a needle in public in the airport. And he said, yes. I said, you guys are crazy. Now, the interesting thing here, Bernadette, was that that wasn't the end of the story. Oddly enough, a couple of weeks later, I got an email. I got a, a, sent a letter from somebody in the consortium that we were invited to appear and participate in a secret White House phone call. The secret White House phone call was with the Ebola czar, Ron Klein, and other scientists that were involved in Ebola. And the phone call, which I took really close notes on, and it's all outlined in my book on Ebola, went like this. You scientists out there that are talking about Ebola, you have to be careful what you say because the public really trusts you. You have credentials. You have to be very careful. And we want you to say what the CDC is saying because they have it right. And it's important that you give the message the CDC says. Are you saying that the secret meeting was to tell you to toe the line and don't step outside CDC bounds? Is that yeah, exactly. Not only that, the next thing that came out of the Ebola czar's mouth was stunning. He said, you know, because we have this nice NIH funding machine, something could happen to funding availability if you don't do, if you don't tell them what we tell, what we tell you to, if you don't wow. tell them. It was, it was overt. Overt threat. Like, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice laboratory you got here, Dr. Lyons. Well, the same, same something should happen to it, you know. It was a bit like a threat. And so we got, we had the opportunity to ask questions at the end. And the first question that came out was with a, a sociologist. And the sociologists let, this was a, a, a female sociologist, and she let them have it. And right off the bat, she said, you know, the NSF has been funding sociological and political science research in these countries in Africa for the past two and a half decades. And she said, why in the world did you not come to us and ask us how these societies are structured before you go in there, before you went in there 
dressed in your spacesuits carrying needles to test everybody is scaring the hell out of everybody, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Ron Klein, the Ebola czar, said, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe we'll do that next time. That was his answer. That was his so answer. So there were a couple of other questions, which I don't remember. But of course, I remember my question. Yeah, yeah. And my question well, was, go well, ahead. Go, well, I, you finish that, but I have a question to follow up. So don't let me forget. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> my, so my next question to the Bolazar and everybody on the call was, could somebody explain to me why the director of the CDC testified to Congress that there are no mutations in this virus? When sitting on my laptop, watching it on my large screen TV, I was actually analyzing the data, comparing the Zaire strain of Ebola to the Ebola strain from 19, uh, sorry, to, from 2014. So from 1995 to 2014, and there were 398 mutations. And it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine before his testimony, three weeks before his testimony. How in the world did that happen? Who misadvised the director of the CDC Right. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. this was Tom Frieden, who told this, the uh, uh, a committee in Congress uh, that he was not afraid that there's going to be a sustained outbreak in the United States unless there was a mutation in this virus. And he said, and I quote, there are no mutations in this virus. And I had three hundred ninety ninety eight that I was analyzing on my computer at the time that he said it. Ron Klein said, I'm not a molecular biologist. I'm not an evolutionary biologist. I don't know anything about mutations, but we have somebody here from the CDC who can answer this for you. His name is Stuart Nichols. It's the same guy. Mm. Stuart Nichols said, I don't know who asked the question, even though I, I had identified myself. I don't know who asked the question, but whoever it was, they had silenced me is completely misinformed. There are no mutations in this virus. It is 99.9999% similar to the Ebola Zaire. Now, if you take if you take the, the 2014, anybody can go to the GenBank, anybody can go to NCBI, and they can download the, either the nucleotide sequence or the protein sequence, and they can do a comparison side by side, Ebola Zaire to two, uh, 2014. So why Stuart Nichols thought that we would all just roll over and go, oh, okay, Stuart Nichols said it, he's from the CDC, big deal, there's no mutations. So that was the only thing that I saw wrong reading this, writing this entire book, and I interviewed many, many experts on Ebola, um, uh, I even advocated for Ebola vaccines in that book. And uh, the, the, the problem with Ebola was that it was shut down by promising people in those countries access to Western medicine. And then instead of being put into Ebola treatment units, they were brought into the triage unit if they had any symptoms of Ebola. Whether they had Ebola or not, they were all put in the same location and were not let go. They would not go, they were not given any medicine. They were not given any care. They were constrained. They had to use the same pit latrines. And half of the people that went there without Ebola died. Wow. That's how they shut down Ebola in Western that So that's all in the book, right? Um, you had a question about this. Well, I did because, you know, I'm seeing echoes of what you went through exactly with COVID, the mistakes made. They wanted their own test, That's not right. the test that Germany had already done, although we now know that even that was flawed. The PCR tests are a nightmare. But the PCR tests, you know, it's a swab up the nose. So what, I, what I'd like to know is, is saliva, like you said about Ebola, that, you know, whatever you see in saliva is pretty much equates to what's in the blood. So it's a good place to check. 
could we be checking for COVID just with spit and not having to violate people with these swabs? You know, I mean, your invention sounds so less invasive, user-friendly, such a great idea. And if it worked on proteins, couldn't we do this for everything and really kind of end this testing nightmare if it was accurate? Well, well Bernadette, the, the, the initial data on uh, saliva versus nasal pharyngeal swabbing for the accuracy of PCR, if it's truly there, right? The sensitivity was that saliva was better. Saliva is better. That, that was, those were the initial reports. Okay. Since then, there have been reports that have put, put out that have to be looked at with skepticism because they say now all of a sudden saliva is worse, right? And there was a guy that invented a saliva-based test and he died in, in New England. He, uh, he died. Um, there's a, okay. a researcher who was, was pushing for saliva-based tests. Here's the thing. We could go with the route of China and we could do the anal swabs. That <laughs> appears to be more accurate. That's, but you're right. Let's, let's back away from PCR entirely because PCR itself is insufficient. At this point in time, since we're talking about testing, I'm not trying to push or promote a a newfangled, unproven, you know, ATP in a DNA cage protein, James Lyons Weiler, crazy off the wall idea about how to do testing. I'm, I'm not even working on that for coronavirus. But what I am promoting is sequencing the PCR product, doing the PCR in a way that you are sequencing not only the target part of the gene so you know that it's coronavirus but you're also using other primers to sequence through the primer sequences mm -hmm. and the reason why we have to double sequence these things is because uh we since september the pcr tests have been been failing at an increasing rate these uh specific variants 8.5 percent of the genetic variation that's in the emerging variants these new variants that you hear about those 8.5% of them are localized to these 21, 18 base, 18 to, to 21 base primer sites. The genome is 29,000 bases. Why are 8.5% of the mutations found in these tiny little eight, 18 to 21 base primer sites for all the known tests? So does That's that mean because... they're missing like 92% of the... No, it has no. nothing to do with what, what, okay. what it is. <laughs> What it is, Bernadette, is that if you have a mutation in the primer site, the primer won't bind. Because the primer won't uh, bind, yeah. then that person has COVID, but they escape the test. So they, okay. they're not isolating. They're not being quarantined. So that's why these variants are spreading. At least 8.5% uh, of them are spreading. They're not more transmissible. Okay. They're escaping the PCR test. And it turns out to be a fatal flaw an absolute fatal flaw for the PCR testing. So what's the reaction to the scientific community to false negatives this way? Well, that means that we have to do more testing. That's the reaction. We have to add more primers. We have to have two tests instead of one. Those, the second test now should have a different set of primers, which is if you extend that logic out, what they're really talking about is eventually we're going to have to do next-gen sequencing. We're going to have to amplify all the different parts of the genome, and we're going to sequence it. Uh, we're going to we're going to have to use so many different primers that that we might as well be sequencing. It becomes complex. It's ad hoc. It's not science based. There's no studies. Well, it, you're just showing to me how ridiculously complex and expensive it is to look at 
germs, viruses, um, as, as this enemy from without, which is the whole germ theory, and to ignore treatments and ignore individual susceptibility. If yeah. we flip it around to what the science actually supports, that it's individual susceptibility and yeah. getting the right existing treatments on board, things get much simpler, so much simpler than, you know, all of this testing. It's just, it is so insane to me, but I, I want to go back a little bit here because so you continue, you found that out, you realize the CDC is not what it was cracked up to be. So you got this healthy dose of mistrust going on, but it wasn't until you wrote, it was at your second or third book when you went down the rabbit hole of vaccines, because until then you weren't what you now define as risk aware. Right. And I met you at that stage when you started that journey. Yeah, exactly. So I had uh, decided since Ebola was such a bummer, I was going to write a book that celebrated all the great successes in translational research. It's an absolute, I mean, I'm patting myself on the back, but if you want to understand how to do good clinical translational research, read the book Cures Versus Profits, because what it does is it, it gives all the examples that I could think of at the time. There's 15 different chapters that's, that show, in spite of profit pressure, in, in spite of the perverse incentives of tenure, in spite of the perverse incentives of publish or perish, what are the biologic, but what are the biomedical advances that came through that, that have been successes, clinical successes that are saving lives? And so I wrote 15, 14 of the chapters. I was happy with them, whatever number of chapters there are in the book. And then I decided at the last minute it was missing something. I thought I would add a chapter on vaccines because everybody knows vaccines save millions of lives. I almost felt, felt like I was cheating. It was, it was like, this is going to be the easiest chapter I've ever written for anything. And so I started writing the book, chapter that chapter, and I wrote, vaccines are safe, vaccines are effective, vaccines have saved millions of lives. And then I wanted to, of course, back that up. So I went and I did some research. And when came, the first thing, as you say, is vaccines are safe, right? And so I looked up, well, what happened to Dr. Andrew Wakefield? And I ran into Brian Hooker's transcripts with William Thompson. And so I listened to that video and I read the transcripts over thoroughly. And I just could not believe that William Thompson said, it wasn't the MMR, on-time MMR versus late MMR result that got me. That was bad enough. This was before uh, Posey uh, uh, came out. Was it po um, so? Um, let me let me just pause there and explain yeah. to the listeners what you're talking about who are new sure. to this. So, it was it in 2014 that a CDC top scientist um, turned whistleblower, sort of accidentally, <laughs> and he his name was Dr. William Thompson. And well, he, he knew he knew there was some risk that what he was saying was come out. He called yeah. Brian Hooker. And he said, I know because I'm talking to you that there's a risk that this this could come out. So he yeah. acknowledged it. Go ahead. Yeah. So and yeah, and feel free to interrupt because it's been a while since I've kind of told the story and I can't right. remember. So nobody hold me to the details. I'm going to tell you the general broad story and then go see right. the film Vaxxed to get the full detail. Um, but so he said, I've got to tell you, I'm living with guilt. When yep. we did the Vax Unvax study in Atlanta, um, we threw away a lot of data that clearly showed that if children got, especially African-American boys, got the MMR on time rather than had it delayed till after age three, there was a huge increase 
increased risk of autism. And they found that risk of autism across the board, you know, for all children, um, too, in, in different configurations of the data. Um, they threw that away, and it's just um, all of the information is there, 10,000 pages. He kept copies. And after he confessed to Dr. Brian Hooker, he gave all of that data to Congressman Bill Posey, who went on the House floor and begged Congress to subpoena Thompson, because Thompson legally cannot speak without being subpoenaed. And our U.S. Congress, to this day, 2021, has refused to subpoena him to get him to talk. So it's just heart-wrenching that something as simple as delaying the MMR could reduce a child's risk of autism. Um, and so that is what you're talking about. That's the information that you read, um, that it came right from this top guy at the CDC. Yeah, absolutely. That was one study and it was as, as bad as that is, that, you know, just by spacing them out, like I did in my family, right? We could reduce the incidence of, of autism potentially. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's not what the most important thing, in my view, that William Thompson told Brian Hooker was, oh, yes, we have a sanitation committee. Every study on all vaccines that are being studied for safety by CDC, each publication goes to the sanitation committee first so that they change and weaken any language that puts an emphasis on vaccine risk. Yeah, that was like a a punch to the gut Mm -hmm. that wait a minute. It's bad enough. We already have one case that it's proven that they that they actually changed the study design to get the result that they wanted. They ex, they, they they threw away half of the kids that didn't didn't have uh, uh, half of the children from the study because they didn't have valid Georgia birth certificates. You know how hard it is to get a, a large enough sample size in a clinical study. It's so difficult. So why why are they throwing away half of their data? Mm-hmm. Right. To reduce their statistical power, to make the association go away. That's why they did it. So it's bad enough that they did that. On top of that, then to find out that every single study that's ever been published went through a sanitation committee to hide risk was unacceptable. They're behaving, yeah, they're behaving the way um, I suppose anybody would do who's in a very big, visible position of power and authority, and they realize if they admit something about their plan, what they're doing is causing harm. I mean, it's huge. It's massive. The world will, you know, when it finally comes to light, when everybody finally realized that we've been speaking the truth and all of this needs to change, it's going to be the biggest story on earth. It'll beat COVID when this finally comes out and, and COVID is unmasking it because of the way they're handling it. And um, with that thought though, I'm going to take us to a break. And then when we come back, I want you to continue and then tell us how you, um, you know, your journey of discovery led you to um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and the gang at Children's Health Defense. So you've been listening to 1150 AM KKNW and Informed Life Radio. We'll be right back.
Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. But we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Did you know that in 1986, Congress passed the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, granting liability protection to drug companies for injuries and deaths caused by their vaccine products recommended to children? Did you know injuries and deaths of pregnant women and their unborn children were added to the act in 2016? Did you know that on February 4, 2020, drug companies who make COVID-19 vaccines were placed under the liability protection of the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, known as the PrEP Act? To learn the history of how we got here in order to protect yourself now and in the future, you must see the film, 1986, The Act. Go to 1986theact.com today. Welcome back to 1150 AM KKNW and Informed Life Radio. I am here with Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, also known as Dr. Jack. And he's been telling us about the journey that he went on, you know, got his PhD, went around, taught, worked at various universities, did various research. And it was his engagement with the CHD um, that really showed him that all is not what it seems. And um he got to a place, Jack, right, where you just, you could just see it. You could see the, it was partly a grasp for, for, for power and control over situations that you saw with the Ebola, where they were, you know, denying what was really going on so they could have full control of the situation. And then with vaccines at at the CDC, where they have built in the system, something that you're calling, what was that word that where it goes by the team of people who um, you had a sanitation committee, a sanitation committee. Is that was I don't remember that term. Exact. Is that the term they actually use? I'm not sure if that's the term or if that's the <laughs> hook I have it on my mouth uh, in, 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 in my mind. I'm sorry yeah. to, to remember it. But that's the effect. He said that any language that what that exposed any risk to vaccines was cleaned up. That's the effect of what he had to say. Certainly not a verbatim uh, uh, term, but yeah, this this all got started in 1995. The CDC Foundation was created. I'm actually reading a tweet by Dr. Naomi Wolf right now. It's not as though we're making this up. Uh, she says, must read, this explains everything. 1995, CDC Foundation created, allows pharma to donate money to CDC. $28 million in one year from pharma, $13.5 million in one year from the Bill Gates and Melinda Foundation. CDC is part invested in pharma via foundation. And she's actually citing 
the paper, she's promoting the peer-reviewed manuscript uh, paper, or the, the analysis by Dr. Henley et al., where we show that they got the deaths wrong, uh, where the authors, sorry, show that they got the, the deaths wrong on COVID-19 by a long shot. So back to the story on the, I'm writing this book, Cures Versus Profits, right? I've got this chapter. I'm reading everything that I can possibly read. And I discover things like the sanitation committee. I discover four major vaccine controversies. The fact that it was alleged that Merck put the rabbit antibodies into human samples to make it look like the MMR was still working against the mumps. That's a case that's still ongoing now, 10 years after it got started. Uh, and everything's under seal there. Uh, it was not clear what the outcome of that's going to be. I learned about the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. I learned how you have to sue the Department of Health and Human Services. How, so the, the are you telling me that you didn't know about the 1986 Act? You, right. a scientist working in the field of science and research, didn't know about this major act of Congress until uh, 14, 10, 24, 25 years later or more? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's no reason for me to know about it. I didn't have a vaccine injured child, and they certainly Well, they didn't. don't promote it was my they, point, yeah, isn't that, it? <laughs> they, 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 they certainly don't promote it. But in this adversarial system, uh, you know, uh, I've joined that system, and I've subsequently quit. I, uh, I was an expert in a couple of the cases, uh, of a handful, maybe six or seven of them, and it's completely unfair. The, yeah. the HHS is the defendant, and they uh, direct the program. Yeah. That imagine if you robbed a bank and you became the judge in the courtroom that was trying to determine whether or not you robbed a bank. That's what it's like. They have control of the legal system, the judiciary system, and it's actually a violation of the separation clause uh, because you have they're all in the executive branch of government mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they're adjudicating as if they're the judicial branch. It's the most ridiculous right. uh, breach of uh, uh, of uh, problems there. Oh yeah, when you when you list it out, it's just insane. So the 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 CDC invests in and pays for vaccine research and development. Um, HHS, FDA, the whole system licenses them. They um, recommend them. Yep. They issue guidelines for them. They purchase them. They distribute them. They highly promote them. Dubious promotions. <laughs> They are responsible they oversee the for safety research on. Let's not forget that. Right. They oversee, oversee the safety, safety research. research. They um, are responsible for that. And if you get injured, you have to sue them and they have to defend the government against um, they are, that you know, suit. It's worse than just defend <laughs> the government. They, they are the judge and the defendant. Yeah, it's absolutely the judge and unacceptable. The yeah, and, it's and so I'm writing this. I'm writing this book. And I've got this chapter, and I, I said to Grace, I said, if I if I publish this chapter in this book, the book's not going to be a bestseller. Other than otherwise, I was celebrating biomedical research. Remember, I went into this to find the successes, to find to to celebrate biomedicine, to celebrate biomedical and translational research, and I just couldn't I I couldn't turn away from it. I couldn't ignore what I had found. And so I published it. And if you want to try to make it into a bestseller, if you know how to do that, go for it. <laughs> Cures versus Profits by Dr. James Lyons-Weiler. Yeah. But the point is, I wasn't done because it really bothered me that the CDC hid data that showed that perhaps on-time or delayed vaccination might be related to autism. So I decided 
and this is when you and I really met, to write a book on autism, to say, what is the plausibility? This is before I became an expert in the NVICP. What's the plausibility? So I went and I, and I read, I downloaded 4,000 studies. I studied 3,000. I read in detail 2,000 studies on autism, not on vaccines, on autism. And that's when I ran into Dr. Russell Blaylock and how aluminum can create and other metals and other toxins can create chronic microglial activation, the importance of glutamate, glutamate receptor overactivation, all the biological basis uh, of, of how chemicals, toxins could cause problems with the enteric, uh, the, the, the digestive system, microglia, there's microglia there. So I, I wrote this book, I did this to write a book and it's the environmental genetic causes of autism. And, and that book also, not a bestseller. <laughs> First of all, Bernadette, you actually, I want to, I want to make the reveal here. Bernadette is a, is a saint because <laughs> Skyhorse Publishing asked me for a manuscript of 50,000 words. I ended up writing a book that was 100,000 words. And I turned to Bernadette and I said, is there any way that you can help me get this down to 50,000 words? <laughs> so somewhere there's a version of a manuscript that's twice as long. And she beautifully managed to do this and retain everything there that was factual and get rid of everything that was extraneous words. And uh, we owe her a debt of gratitude so you don't have to read 100,000 words. You just have to read 50,000 words. Uh, <laughs> so thank you, Bernadette. That was You're an welcome. amazing job that you did. But um, that book itself, The Environmental and Genetic Causes of Autism, it's now five years old. Can you believe that? No. It's now five years old. So there's been five more years in autism. And what I think I might do is do volume two, but instead invite authors that are that are contributing to the fields in the different chapters that I wrote. So we would do a rewrite of the book and say, refer to number one for this. And then in this number two, see how far along we've come. But anyway, I, I, I did all this. I in the meantime, I created the Institute for Peer and Applied Knowledge. We collect money from the, from the public to do unbiased, objective biomedical research. We've mm -hmm. published on the aluminum accumulation and clearance, three papers, three studies on aluminum accumulation and clearance because 60% of the vaccines on the CDC schedule have aluminum. We've determined that kids in their first year of life are in aluminum toxicity 100% of their days. Yeah, due to the, if they're on the aluminum, uh, if they're on the CDC's planned schedule. Mm -hmm. Compared to Dr. Paul Thomas's schedule, who's been on your show, uh, he, only 5% of their days are they in aluminum toxicity. So the on the vaccine friendly plan. Mm -hmm. so. That paper was under attack for retraction. Somebody anonymously contacted the journal. This happened, uh, I think, three months ago, three or four months ago. And I had actually just challenged the editor, editorial board and the editor to rational discourse. I said, fine, take the, publish their critique with their name on it, and we will reply. And that's how it's done in science. We'll have it out in public and let the, let the scientific community. Mm -hmm. The other side chickened out. They wouldn't publish their critique. So the journal, in their graciousness, invited our response to an unpublished critique in the form of a correction to our paper, uh, to a core agendum. Mm -hmm. And we published that. that, and that, and, and that now we have defeated the first retraction attempt on an IPAC uh, um, paper. And Bernadette, I wanted to tell you, I interviewed Dr. Andrew Wakefield and that Israeli team who did the retraction paper and I, that, that's going to be coming out this week. Um, 
they, they did a study of retraction of vaccine centered papers. And in that oh, interview, yeah. you know, what I'm talking about in that interview, mm -hmm. one of the Israelis with a thick accent was, was saying that, that, that the people who go around, you know, attacking these papers in different journals, they're bullying. And I thought he said ghouling as oh. in like, ghosting and being a phantom and yeah, i said yeah. i really like that term he said what term bullying i said no you didn't say bullying you said ghouling so now <laughs> i have this new word in a whole a blog article where these 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 people there's a very small number of people they go around haunting the journals to try to assassinate all of these vaccine studies that show vaccine risk yeah. so that's the new term and and uh, and that's going to come out on unbreaking science yeah. soon so that's that's okay. a lot of fun to be able to actually say this is what they're doing they're haunting journals you can expect it here are their names we know who they are uh, we're, we're fixing that problem well you know listeners have heard you've had you know quite a long journey of science and and experience you know and i, I think you're one of the most the things I respect most about you is you always remained objective and open-minded, um, open to new ideas. You will change your stance, but you will explain why, you know, you, you're very reasoned and you, you don't cave into pressure. You just look, put head down, do the research, and then you come up for air and you say, this is my stance on this topic. And I so admire you, you. for that. Um, so I want to, you know, before, you know, we've got it maybe um, about 12, 13 minutes here. I want to touch on some of the articles that you have written that have been published in Children's Health Defense, either on that website or The Defender, which is the new online magazine that you can find at Children's Health Defense. There's one uh, brand new one, maybe I missed, or using herd immunity myth to justify COVID vaccines for kids is deceptive and dangerous. Do you want to touch on that one? Did I write that one? Well, I, I Googled, or Googled, <laughs> I uh, searched for your name. Oh, it says the Children's Health Defense team. They might have mentioned you in it. They probably yeah. quoted you in it. it let's let's yeah. go back to another one you authored. Did you author? Um, okay, I got to find the ones that you author. Okay, pathogenic priming. Let's just move right to pathogenic priming. And then maybe what you were teasing me about it before we started this show with the microglial activation. Yeah, so... Um... I've written a couple of articles. One of them was to show that the uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines actually the, the initial results had a very clear signature of potential the high potential for pathogenic priming, in that the elderly because in the original animal studies that were done in SARS and MERS vaccines, the elderly mice that were studied or ferrets that were studied had much worse outcomes than the younger ones in the studies. And uh, what we saw in the Pfizer and in the Moderna vaccines was that the, the older people in the second shot, the older, <laughs> the, older, the older people on the second shot did much worse than on the first shot. Mm. And the, and the younger people did much worse on the second shot as well compared to the first shot. But there was a 10 times increased risk of serious adverse events on the second shot for the older people as opposed to, to compared to the first shot, as opposed to just three times greater risk on the second shot for the younger people. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at a three or four fold increase overall in terms of the risk of serious adverse event for the elderly on the second shot. 
Now, what, what does this tell us? It tells us that the second shot is going to be worse than the first. And everybody knows that, right? But put that in the context of the fact that I predicted based on the serious adverse events, I'm sorry, based on the disease enhancement of the virus uh, after vaccination for SARS and MERS and for RSV, put that together with my prediction of pathogenic priming in April 2020, even before there was a single, you know, even before they created the first single vaccine, right, mm -hmm. uh, for it, that, okay, this is consistent. There's a clear warning sign here. And, th and that, that, that was sent out at a time before they started rolling out the vaccines. So this was not now. This is not recent. These are a little bit older. Another article that I wrote actually re-estimated the Moderna efficacy. Uh, Moderna published, of course, a 95% efficacy. Um, and I had a problem with that because in both the control arm, well, in, 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 the, in, yeah, in the control arm, in the placebo saline shot arm in Moderna, and the actual vaccine arm, uh, there were people that got coronavirus after the first shot. But Moderna had not included those coronavirus cases. It's like they don't exist, right? So they're not going to count you if you get the coronavirus, uh, if, if you de develop coronavirus after the first shot, you're not included in the Moderna math. So if my thinking on was, well, if we roll out this vaccine and we say it's 95% effective, what percentage of people actually develop coronavirus between the first and second shot? So that's what your efficacy has to be. And you have to, you have to, you can't exclude those cases. There's still coronavirus cases. You either protected it uh, after the first shot or you didn't. It's, it's, you know, there's this middle ground. And so I recalculated Moderna's efficacy to be 75%. And you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. wanted to see that in print. So he invited me to uh, write it up for Children's Health Defense. Mm -hmm. And that's how it works. I, I consider myself an, an honorary Children's Health Defense, you know, member. I'm a, a contributing author to their publications. I advise Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, he calls sometimes at some strange times. Like I was, I remember I was at my book release at the, uh, Hard Rock Cafe in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for Cures versus Profits. No, for the for the for the autism book. Mm -hmm. And um, I was supposed to go up on the microphone and my phone rings and it says Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I'm like, I've always called to congratulate me on my book release. No, that's not why Bobby was calling me. He was calling <laughs> me because he was in the middle of a case and it was the Jane et al. study. He wanted to know was there a problem with the Jane et al. study that showed it was studying it was a study of uh, families that had older siblings that had autism and younger siblings that didn't. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to know was the vaccination related, mm -hmm. you know, it, and, and, and I looked it up and, and I've read it right there. And, and like 15 seconds later, I said, yeah, healthy user bias. He said, thank you. He hung up and that was it. Yeah. So <laughs> I, that's the kind of nature of the relationship yeah. by the same token, the funniest story that I have of people of who's calling who was most recently I woke up at about four in the morning and I had this idea that uh, from rate data alone on the rates of coronavirus or any pathogen over time that I figured out my, in my sleep, I figured out how we could estimate the false positive rate. And I call up Bobby and it's 4.30 in the morning and, and I said, Bobby, it's a closed system. And, and through signal process, and I'm describing the algorithm to him. He very nicely listens to me for about five minutes. And he says, that's great, Jack. He goes, do you know what coast I live on? <laughs> He's on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. I call him at 4.30 my time. And then oh, no. he said, 
And then he said, yeah, it, it's a good thing that I'm on my way to the airport. Oh, so okay. <laughs> he was already up and out the door and I was still stumbling around my, my house looking for coffee to get the, you know, the ideas out of my brain. But yeah. anyway, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great, great organization. Children's Health Defense has been consistent. You know, they, they, they research everything thoroughly that they put out there. Mm-hmm. And like any news organization, and they are part of the new media. You know, it, we, we, we do not want to adopt any terminology like alternative media. It's not. The people that are going to publish thoroughly investigated media uh, 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 stories, uh, uh, videos, whatever, like High Wire, Children's Health Defense, they're the new media. This this uh, used to be Kennedy's News and Views. It's now the Defender. It's mm-hmm. the new media. And the, the, the very best investigative journalists will have a hard time finding anything that's inaccurate. And if you do find something that's inaccurate, you should contact the publisher, the publisher who's the Children's Health Defense, and let them know that there's a problem. And they'll mm-hmm. issue a correction or whatever. The point mm-hmm. is, they're objective. They don't have any... They don't have their thumb on the scale. That's the best way to put it. Yeah. They don't have. They're not. They're not gaming anybody. They're not trying to fool anybody. They're the most uh, among the most objective uh, news source that you can find. I rank them up with Cheryl Atkinson for sure. Oh, I love Cheryl. She is fantastic. There are some uh, wonderful journalists out there. Um, one in particular, I know you've probably read a lot of stuff by him, but you know, there's so many great people rising now to our attention. But Alex Berenson. Yeah, he's great. Um, great journalist. And I heard he was having a hard time with his new novel because he was writing some um, uh, journalism that was critical of how COVID was being handled. And so I ordered his new fiction book. So I, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, well, that's, support. that's the thing. Yeah. The, the rest of the people that are skeptical and they think that people have lost their mind, they have to wonder why once somebody figures something out, like once, once, once I've done all the research that I've done, and I've read all the papers. I've read all the papers on autism. Who in the plant on the planet, autism and vaccines, who on the planet can say that they've done that? Yeah. I not only read them, I evaluated them with an objective evaluation score. So somebody like Alex Barrison comes along and he was pro-vax, 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 right? I still am not anti-vaccine. I am mm-hmm. for safer vaccines, 100%. We can, we can get there, but I'm also for choice. Mm-hmm. Alex Barrison, Berenson, uh, he's never going to stop critiquing the way that they're doing this vaccine. He mm-hmm. may or may not continue on and say, wait a minute, and realize, wait a minute, this is how they do all the vaccine studies. Yeah. He may not <laughs> figure that out, right? Yeah. He, but he will never then say, you know what, I was wrong about this. Because yeah. you can't. You, you, you absolutely, once you know it, you, you know it. And, and once you've researched it to the extent that you research and you understand where the thumbs are on the scale, and that's the mm-hmm. best way to put it. Pharma, CDC, NIH, NIAID, they've got their thumb on the scale and it's a, it's fraud. There's absolute fraud. And yeah. I know uh, David Martin has a dossier and Anthony Fauci that people should look up and understand that uh, there are serious consequences when you lie to the American public that way. When you consistently mislead them intentionally to to to, to for profit motive. So. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, this is fantastic information, Jack. It's it's so great having you on. We've only got like a minute and a half here. Um, tell people like 
your current project and where they can go fund because they you are grassroots all of your science no pharma no government it's individual moms and pops five dollars here twenty dollars there i mean if you've got an extra thousand bucks ipad could use it but tell them about your current project and sure. where they can go um, donate to help you do it well I, I more and more people are starting to really appreciate jameslinesweiler.com actually I, I, a lot of people have found that the the articles that are written there are some good strong information so when you donate that when you it's not a donation to ipac when you do that it's a gift to me so if you want to buy me a cup of coffee you can go there and you can buy me a cup of coffee but the latest ipac project there's a number of them the the most most important one is the nucleic acid amplification testing evaluation consortium Dr. Singh Hang Lee, Dr. Delor uh, Professor Dolores Cahill, uh, Kevin Jenkins, Dr. Henry Ely, and um, I don't want to leave anybody out, but uh, yeah, that, that's the team right now. We're fundraising. We need, need $300,000 to be able to outfit Dr. Lee to take clinical samples from patients around New England and to sequence their uh, samples, their clinical samples specifically not just for coronavirus, but for influenza A, influenza B, we're sequencing for bacterial pneumonia, we're sequencing for RSV. So if they, if they have um, respiratory illness, we wanna do differential diagnosis in the research setting. So this won't impact their personal clinical care. This, mm -hmm. this is 100% gonna be IRB approved, just uh, base research, but we're gonna use those data to evaluate the PCR testing paradigm. So you've gotta ask yourself, who do you trust? people with their thumb on the scale or people who are doing science for everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's what you got to go to IPAC to, to find that there's other, there's other scientists that we're working with on other projects, but you know, if, if you go to ipaknowledge.org, you'll see that we have a large compendium of projects. Many of them are ongoing. Uh, you know, we're, we're always open. Let's just put it that way. Go to ipaknowledge.org. It's the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge. And I've got to put out a hearty thanks to Grace, my fiance. She puts up with long, long hours of working <laughs> and working and working yeah. and telling her I can't talk right now because I'm doing this interview or because yeah. or I'm reading a thousand studies. I have to tell the world how much I love her and uh -huh. that uh, she's the love of my life and that I, I'm just so grateful. She gives me such good support and she's the brains of the operation she tells me things that i then say hey that's a good idea you know she, she she's got a brain of her own don't don't get me wrong it's not it's it's a collaboration so yeah um, and I, we, she, yeah. she she she's a wonder so we we all love grace and i know she's sat around with us when we have like you know conversation for an hour's long and she'll barely say anything and then she'll say one thing and it will be brilliant because she's been processing everything we've been saying you know she's yep. such a gift especially for those of us who don't know how to shut up she's the, these quiet <laughs> brilliant silent people i love them you know yeah, they balance yeah, the world <laughs> yeah she, she is she is great like that and she takes yeah. after her mom and her dad that way yeah. so yeah she's great all right, Jack and Grace over there where we can't see you off camera. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening to the CHD Hour on Informed Life Radio. We'll be back after the break with one more great hour and Dr. Paul Thomas. Need information about your child's vaccinations? Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization of parents, family members, medical professionals, educators, and Washingtonians from all walks of life. They believe in personal freedoms and individual choices, including healthcare choices. 
Their mission is to advocate for vaccine policy reform based on scientific integrity and individual health needs, to promote education about healthy immunity, and to protect informed consent and medical freedom in Washington State. To stay informed, visit informedchoicewa.org. Informed Choice Washington envisions the future where every doctor is fully trained in identifying vaccine risk factors and recognizing vaccine injury. Every child is afforded a personalized approach to disease prevention, and every parent has the freedom to make the best health care decisions for themselves and their families. They know every child matters. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. to an 1150 AM KKNW and Inform Life Radio. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager, coming to you from the great Puget Sound region. And, you know, the weather's looking a little bit better. We had a lot of snow uh, and now it's warmed up and things are looking really green. And I can't believe it looks like I need to mow the lawn. So, but it, luckily it's too wet to do that. So I can't quite do that yet, but I'm itching for spring. I don't know how the rest of you guys are feeling, but it, it's been a long, crazy uh, winter, and um, I'm looking forward to, to spring and life and planting something and and getting out there, uh, getting some fresh air, looking forward to some sunshine. So today, um, we've got a special guest, Dr. Paul Thomas. He was not actually available uh, for this hour, so I got him this morning, and I recorded our interview. So I'm going to be playing that for you just uh, in a little bit. But before we get going, um, I want to remind you to visit informedchoicewa.org. Part of being an informed citizen is finding information from a wide variety of spaces. So I really hope people find some of the alternative news sources to see what you might be missing. Um, I, I ask people don't, you know, just listen to what I say and run with it. Um, run with it to go find more information. You know, check out what I'm saying. See if it matches the information that you're finding out there too. Go down those rabbit holes and learn. Um, you'll be so much happier and healthier if you enter this world from a place of knowledge rather than a place of fear. And we've just been living in fear for too long. Um, and I just, we, we, we need to stop. We need to just take a deep breath and relax. I'd say close your eyes, but some of you might be driving, so don't close your eyes. <laughs> Uh, anyway, on Informed Choice Washington, we're trying to keep you up to date with what we can. There's so much information, but we're, we're passing along what we can about the science of COVID itself, um, the science of the treatments, and the science of the very concerning vaccines that have been um, authorized for emergency use. I said this last week, but I'm going to repeat it that I want you to really be careful about marketing messages and knowing the difference between a marketing message coming from a public health agency and the actual science, because the two do not agree. This has been going on for decades. It's 
part of what they do. The messaging goes out there. They want the general population to go in a certain direction and they hire marketing companies to get the messages out there. This is a dangerous practice when we're talking about something that's potentially life-threatening like COVID-19, um, but also with emergency use in, uh, investigational products that have no long-term history of safety or effectiveness. So one of the examples um, is a CDC ad that's on social media right now that asks the question, is it safe for me to get a COVID-19 vaccine if I would like to have a baby one day? And they answer that question, they say yes. People who are trying to become pregnant now or plan to try in the future may receive the COVID-19 vaccine when it becomes available. There's no evidence that fertility problems are side effect of any vaccine. Even if you're already pregnant, you may choose to be vaccinated when it's available to you. There is currently no evidence that antibodies formed from COVID-19 vaccination cause any problem with pregnancy. But then you go over to the NIH, and if you go to our website, you can find the exact link to this. And this is what the National Institute of Health says. Longstanding, oh, sorry, let me start in a different place here. The manufacturers of currently available vaccines excluded pregnant women and lactating people from, wait, okay, sorry. I'm reading really small print, I apologize. Uh, from the clinical trials needed to obtain emergency use authorization from the US Food and Drug Administration. Now that the vaccines have been distributed, the US Centers for Disease Control and the FDA will obtain information from those who receive them on potential impact during pregnancy, as well as information on infant outcomes. While these data will prove useful, pregnant people and their clinicians must make real-time decisions now about the vaccine based on little or no scientific evidence that applies specifically to them. So that's pretty important. What the National Institute is saying, they have zero safety data for pregnant and lactating women, for the infants being nursed, or for the unborn children. And yet the CDC is heavily marketing it and telling you it is safe. The deceptive language that you see, and um, if you, you have to learn to read public health messaging very carefully because they try not to say anything that could get them that's litigious in any way, is they say there is no evidence. When they say there is no evidence, yeah, they're right, there is no evidence they cause harm because there's been no studies done, zero studies done, you know? So that's very concerning that they would do this. And so I just, encourage you to read deeply, read thoroughly, read the science on these products and go find a very trusted um, healthcare practitioner if you are uh, pregnant or considering getting pregnant to find out what you can do to protect yourself from any infection. Um, and if you do get sick while pregnant, the safest, best way to navigate through that, that's safe for you and safe for your little one. So do that research now, do it now before um, you need the information. Anyway, that's, that's me getting a little bit preachy here, getting on my platform, but it's just so important to understand the difference between the marketing messages of public health policies and the actual science, because I tell you, they often do not agree. Um, there's been some reports out of 
the latest adverse uh, events reported to VAERS, the numbers now are, let me see if I can find those numbers here. So they just recently updated. And so the number of adverse reactions to COVID-19 vaccines reported as of February 12th is 15,923. Of those 3,126 were coded as serious and 929 were deaths. So we don't know. We don't know for sure. The problem, of course, is deep investigations have to happen into each and every one of those serious cases and those deaths. And something that's not quite really understood about vaccine injury and vaccine death is that vaccines don't usually leave fingerprints. They are immune activators. And they will cause an immune reaction that can happen in many situations. They can cause um, you to go into cardiac arrest. They can cause seizures. They can cause many things to go wrong. But when an autopsy is performed, you're not going to find like, you know, something that leaps out that says for sure, aha, it was the vaccine. And so investigating these, finding the right science and understanding the biological mechanisms of injury that are possible, that are plausible from exposure to these products has to be considered along with the temporal association. And temporal is the time, the time from when you get the vaccine until the adverse reaction happens or the death happens. And uh, the defender at Children's Health Defense has a new article out just today that says that one third of the deaths reported to CDC after COVID vaccines occurred within 48 hours of vaccination. So that's, you know, concerning, something that has to be looked into. So I, you know, I don't want to put people in a place of fear of COVID and fear of vaccines. I want you to be empowered to understand that you are in charge of your own health and there are solutions. There are fabulous nutrient and oxidative um, therapy solutions to protect you and to you know, help you recover. And there's also ivermectin. Ivermectin is the inexpensive uh, drug. It's an antiparasitic that has been found to be antiviral and around the world it is reducing um, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. And, you know, we had Dr. Pierre Corey go check um, our video out from last week. It's like a 23, 24 minute video of Dr. Pierre Corey talking about it. And there's a ton of information at the COVID19criticalcare.com website, just fabulous information. So go explore that, know what your options are. And so I think what we're going to do now is I'm going to move us on to my interview this morning with uh, Dr. Paul Thomas. So bear with me. Let me see if I can do this. I'm not quite as fast as I would like to be. I'm going to share my screen with y'all and I'm going to click on this here and share my sound. There we go. Eric, I'm in trouble here. (laughs) Do you want to take a quick break and then you yeah. can pull up that video while we do our commercial break? Let's do that. Thank you so much, Eric.
you know, all healing begins in the cells. And for the cells to do their job, well, they need the right nutrients, like vitamin C and D, and gases, like oxygen. Did you know that there is a treatment that infuses every cell of your body with oxygen? Hyperbaric Oxygen Therapy, HBOT for short, is a safe and effective medical treatment that can be used in therapies for many injuries and diseases. HBOT was actually used successfully during the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic to treat hypoxia and respiratory failure. And it's now being used to successfully treat COVID-19 as several clinical trials are underway. HBOT increases your production of glutathione, which is critical to immune function and increases stem cell proliferation. To learn more about this century-old technology that is the future of medicine, visit hbotnews.org today. That's hbotnews.org. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. Yes, hi, welcome back to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW. Eric, you rock as my engineer, you saved me, thank you. Um, I'm working on a new computer here today and it's a PC and I usually am on a Mac, so good heavens, you click the wrong button and there you go. So I think I'm ready to go. I'm going to, um, no, I can't find, okay, I'll find it, people. I, I don't know. I, is it a full moon today? I'm just not even quite sure what's going on. Um, all right, here we go. Windows Media Player. I'm going to do this. Share sound. I'm going to click share. And you guys are going to hear my interview of Dr. Paul Thomas. Cross your fingers. Yeah. So hi, Dr. Paul. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hi, Bernadette. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> um, you know, so much has been in the news about pregnant women and children and COVID. You would think that children and pregnant women are at just massive risk of really poor outcome. Um, so I want to look at this very closely, you know, because we have to be careful of marketing hype, sensationalism happening on the media, you know, um, my, my mama was always one who was always afraid that the whole world was going to pot and people were being murdered on the street because she watched the news an awful lot. And yeah. they didn't <laughs> report that, you know, 6,999,900,000 people were not murdered that day. Right. They only report the one person, right? So, yeah, bad news sells. Bad news sells. And, and it can get to us. A year of bad news about yep. COVID yep. is selling big time. Yep. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm really concerned about our children. Um, the thought 
that, you know, society has memory. So Mm -hmm. you you think about weapons of mass destruction, how how that whole thing was rolled out and we went to war and destroyed a whole country and region over a false uh, narrative, you know, Mm -hmm. that there were these weapons of mass destruction. And and what that does to the collective psyche, well, think about what we're doing to the collective psyche of our children worldwide, but I mean, I'm witnessing it here in the United States. When you mask everybody up, you push people into isolation, what's the message that kids are getting? World is a dangerous place. Mm -hmm. And when you do that to a child's developing brain, it changes their brain. I mean, you're, you're now creating a fear environment, which is absolutely devastating to your health and development. It's just something I've been worried about, and we're not really assessing this other than being aware that, wow, we are seeing more suicides. We're seeing more ADD, ADHD. Just about anything we look at is on the rise, and it's probably stress-related among other things. Yeah, I agree, and you're not alone, and I think a lot of us are very, very worried about the fear um, and our children. We've become a nation, if not a planet, of germaphobes. Yeah. You know, it's it's just not it's not healthy. We know that we that germs keep us alive. In fact, there was this study. Oh, I wish I had it in front of me um, that was published just uh, last year about viruses and the need for viruses that um, because the question was posed in this article and it was a major article what would happen if we got rid of all viruses? Wouldn't life be wonderful? And it <laughs> oh said boy. we would be, it would be great for about a minute and a half. Yeah. And then humans would actually die off because yeah. we need microbes. We're microbial yes. creatures and viruses yes. are part of that. Yeah. No, it's, it's so true. We know that the, when you put a person in a bubble, the people who had, um, you know, born without a, an active immune system and they would be so fearful to put these kids in a bubble and they didn't do well. They would often die. Um, actually, in my this past year, when they when they first started opening up after the initial COVID closure, I took a motorcycle ride through the Southwest, and I was at a little restaurant in Utah, like me and one other person in this restaurant. They had just opened up that week, and the the lady who served me had a child who had a gamma globulinemia, you know, no immune system, so to speak. And she was told to put this kid in isolation and she refused. She let him play in the dirt. She let him go to school. And this kid did fine. Wow. So, you know, it's just what you're pointing out is so true. Um, We need exposure to germs. This war on viruses or war on germs is misguided. Absolutely misguided. It's a healthy immune system that keeps you healthy. Among other things, you need your nutrients and avoid toxins, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you're not doing the right thing by avoiding all these quote germs because they're important in exercising our immune system. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, germophobia is a very profitable, Ah. (laughs) you know, know, yeah, I'm going to definitely go there because it it is, if you fear germs, then you want to buy the products that protect you from the germs and you will accept the risks of products that supposedly Mm -hmm. protect you from very targeted germs. And, you know, it, it's, it's really very insane. And the, the, when vaccines were first invented, you know, more than a hundred years ago, we didn't even know we had a, a biome. We knew, yeah, we right. knew so little. And yet, even though science now shows, science now shows that during the first year of life, when a baby, you know, baby is born, the, the first experience they have is to be 
populated with their mother's biome as they pass Eight. through the birth canal, right? Yep. Right. And they're in some places they are actually now, if you have a cesarean, taking the biome from the mother, we'll right. say that delicately, and swabbing yep. the baby bit yes. to make sure uh, they vaginal get seeding, they call it some in yeah. some places. You just get sterile gauze, put it in the vagina after right after you've delivered, you've had a C section, mm -hmm. get it all moist and then just cover your baby, mouth, nose, eyes, everywhere with what they would have been exposed to. I always right. tell my pregnant moms when we're discussing that issue that if you have group B strep, that's a recent positive, maybe maybe, maybe not, but otherwise it, yeah. it makes sense. I mean, that's that's yeah. the natural process to have your baby exposed. How, how better is it to get your natural covering of all the biome that you were supposed to get from your mother than especially most births are in the hospital getting the bacteria in, that are in the hospital. I mean, you can swab hospital counters and doorknobs and high rate of, you know, terrible pathogens, you know, mm -hmm. meth, yeah. meth stone resistant <laughs> staff and, and what have you. Right. So, right. Yeah. yeah. It, it, our biome is important. It, it is so important. And, and that first year of life, the, um, you know, there has, um, there's been some great articles, some studies done showing that the first year of life, infant immune systems are designed not to have a big inflammation reaction to the microbial world because they're populating. You get that first exposure at birth. Can you imagine if an infant's immune system is already acting like an adult immune system and it, it goes on high alert, pathogens, you know, microbes, invasion, Rejects everything you would, you know, you wouldn't even survive the birth process. And right. so that first year of life is, as the baby is, um, entering the world, touching, tasting everything, they are being protected passively by the mother, right? And their right. immune systems aren't overreacting for the very purpose yeah. of, but then when you interrupt it with those infant um, vaccinations and the, and the adjuvants that force the immune system to have that reaction, you know, we are seeing the consequences as yes. your brilliant study that compared your children, the vaccinated versus right. the unvaccinated. There's right. that immune skewing. Absolutely. And this was this was something I thought I was seeing in my practice, but to actually get the raw data and de-identify it and publish it in a peer-reviewed journal showing that the unvaxxed kids, over 500 of them in my practice, compared to the most vaxxed, and even those, almost all of them were about half the rate of vaccination compared to the mm -hmm. CDC schedule. Mm -hmm. But even that rate of vaccination, these kids were experiencing everything from infections, eye infections, ear infections, uh, ADD, eczema, autism, not well, the autism numbers were too low to be significant, but in most cases, but just about anything we looked at, much higher incidence at highly significant levels of diseases and infections and developmental disorders in the highly vaccinated compared to the unvaccinated. So vaccines are disrupting something in our immune system and they're disrupting something in our neurodevelopment. Yeah, definitely. It just seems so very clear. So I'm just so <clears throat> grateful of that study that you put together and I'm looking forward to more. There's phase two coming. So um, let, let's move on then to the whole idea um, um, you know, we've been hearing in the news, they've been talking about, and they're starting to do some studies on pregnant women with these COVID-19 vaccines. And the justification is that pregnancy makes you more susceptible to poor disease outcomes. So, you know, is that really true? Is, you know, well, what are your thoughts? 
in theory, it, it sounds like it could be true for the following reason, but this is just theory. In pregnancy, if you think about it, you're carrying another human being and they have some genetic differences to you, right? They're half your genetic input, but half of your husband's or your, or your spouse uh, or donor. Um, so if the immune system was revved up to react to foreign things, you would reject that baby. So that the pregnancy immune system has gone through some changes to accept a child. And so the theory is uh, in pregnancy, you're much more vulnerable to infection. The only time in my 35 years of practicing medicine where we had a pregnant women and it sounded at the time to be very real. And I even on that data, it wasn't as significant of a risk factor as we thought that episode not aware of it really in real issue. Yeah, you would think that, you know, I always like to sort of trust nature, how things, you know, nature by design didn't your immune system revved up while you're pregnant. Right. And in order to accept the baby and for for everything to go well. But a vaccine makes your immune system do just the opposite, you know? Exactly. And, you know, it just, it, we know that that hyperinflammation from a severe disease can impact the baby, but right. you're guaranteeing they're going to have an immune reaction if you vaccinate them. Whereas right. what are the odds they might've actually um, gotten the flu? Right. Um, so, so you bring up a good point. The, the currently in the United States, pregnant women are being asked, pressured, uh, told by their doctors to give two different vaccines, a flu shot and a Tdap, uh, tetanus, diphtheria, and acellular pertussis. And a few years ago, I think it was about 2016, on the CDC website were a bunch of articles, about 12 of them, justifying the Tdap for pregnancy. There was a, several of them for the flu shot as well. So I did a deep dive into all those articles, presented this presentation at the uh, Physicians for Informed Consent inaugural uh, meeting. Uh, we had a number of scientists presenting and took apart each of those studies, which basically showed they were completely irrelevant to the issue at hand. You would have a study that, for example, was looking at did getting the vaccine change the birth weight? And if it didn't, you say, see, the vaccine's safe. Well, we're not worried about birth weight, folks. We are worried about brain development. We are worried about immune system destruction or shifting it towards allergy and autoimmunity, which we know it does. One of the other studies that was, um, once you dug really deep into it, uh, so the pertussis part of the Tdap is the reason your OBGYN or your family practice doctor is gonna tell you, you got to get this vaccine. You don't want your baby to die of whooping cough, do you? Well, and what parent is going to say, yeah, I want my baby to die of whooping cough? Of course not. So you're kind of tricked into taking a vaccine that in the very study that was published on the CDC website increased your risk of death way above the risk of your child dying of whooping cough. So I'll always ask parents, I'll say, you know, whooping cough is very prevalent, mostly because the acellular vaccine doesn't work very well. So in the United States, we have over 20,000 cases a year, and we have had for over a decade numbers in that range despite aggressive vaccination of children at two months, four months, six months, 18 months, four to five years, boosters every five years after that. Um, adults are getting boosted as they get their tetanus boosters, they're getting the pertussis and still we're having massive outbreaks because the vaccine is 
not reducing or significantly preventing the transmission of disease. Mm -hmm. So, but even with all of that, how many babies are dying of whooping cough in the United States? Oh, I, yeah, on average five. Yep, exactly. So Mm -hmm. I've looked at the data. It's about on average five. How many births do we have in the United States? Four million. Four million. So Mm -hmm. it's roughly one in a million. Well, when you pull this other study that they published as a justification for why you should do the Tdap, I was able to run the numbers. If you are getting the Tdap, you have a higher rate of chorioamnionitis. That's an infection in the womb. And when you run the numbers for 4 million births, there would be 18 deaths per year in the United States from chorioamnionitis over and above the base rate. So you're more likely to kill your baby by getting the vaccine than not even considering pertussis. And and this, this is sort of you know, research, when it just focuses on one issue, you can lose the forest for the trees. And um, they've since taken all those studies down. Now they just tell you what to do. So, well, um, you know how this is so infuriating because the science clearly supports that changes need to happen, that current um, vaccination, vaccination usage, timing, everything needs to change. And yet, you know, and there, there's the evidence. It's solid evidence. Most of the time it's there. It's CDC science, you know, it's, it's solid. And yet we can't, I mean, Dr. Paul, it's so frustrating to, you know, to not be able to, to improve outcomes. Yeah. Um, I, I think our listeners need to be aware that the CDC is not really in the business of protecting our health. They, they put on a show, but if they were, they would absolutely, they would have to make some changes in recommendations for vaccines. I'll give you the most simple, basic, clear-cut example. This is what woke me up. Back in 2001, 2002, there was a big push to move the hepatitis B vaccine from teenagers, where we typically were doing it at that time, and start giving it to newborns. And I remember at that time, I mean, it was available way before that, but that was when the big push was made in the pediatric community. So I remember talking to my peers, we were rounding in the hospital, seeing babies and I was like, can you believe this new CDC recommendation? Everybody was had the same feeling I did. It makes no sense. Why? Babies don't have sex, they don't share dirty needles and as long as their birth mother does not have hepatitis B, their risk is absolutely zero. And yet you're going to inject an aluminum containing vaccine that has 250 micrograms of aluminum when the adult daily max is 50. It just made no sense. To inject a neurotoxin, we now know way more than we knew back then about the, the damage aluminum can do, and, and we know how it does it. So it's insanity, and yet to this day, sadly, almost every baby born in America, welcome to the world, jab with hepatitis B vaccine. Here's your 250 micrograms of aluminum. Oh, and by the way, it's not going to give you lasting protection. We know that now as well. So the whole thing is so misguided. Mm-hmm. based on countless peer-reviewed studies in the literature, but they won't change their recommendations. So there's only one explanation. When that kind of insanity is happening, somebody's conflicted, right? Conflicts mm-hmm. of interest and mm-hmm. it, it follow the money. It, it, there's no other explanation because it's so clear, right? So there's a big profit incentive with vaccines and they always talk about getting people while you can. So that's why Mm -hmm. they amassed all these vaccines on infants because they're a captive audience. And I think the COVID vaccine that's rolling out rapidly around the world 
hopefully will be a wake up call to adults because I think mm -hmm. adults can kind of close, make kind of put their blinders on. Well, they say we're supposed to do this for our kids and we're just, we're doing what we're told. But when you face an experimental vaccine that has no long-term safety testing for yourself, I hope you'll pause and really think about whether that makes sense for you. As a pediatrician, I'm not anti-vaccine, but I do not believe it makes sense to experiment on kids until we have much better science, right? Let's get some data first. We don't want our kids being injected with messenger RNA vaccines that can permanently change your DNA. I mean, this mm -hmm. is GMO humans, mm -hmm. genetically modified humans. It is insane. It makes no sense. They should have done extensive animal studies first through several cycles of disease because of the immune enhancement that can happen with these type of vaccines. Yeah, sorry, I got on my soapbox for you there a little bit. That's why I had you on the show. I love you on a soapbox, Dr. Paul. <laughs> you know, and we we just, we have to get the word out. People need to think critically. And, yes. I, and you know what, I want to say this, because sometimes you get the argument like, it's impossible that hundreds of millions of doctors and nurses and people in medicine around the world are just evil, greedy people. And I agree 100%. Most people who work in medicine are fabulous, intelligent, yep. um, kind, they have a good compassionate, heart. They went good into heart. it for the right reasons. Right. But when you are educated from day one of medical school that yep. vaccines save lives, um, that anybody who questions them is crazy. Right. Uh, you know, right. you just end up in this whole mindset. And, yeah. um, and I think, you know, I hate anybody's been harmed by COVID at all, but there is a gift to COVID. And the gift to that is that it's opened minds because the way public health has approached it has made zero sense to people. They're like, yeah. wait a minute, why are you telling me this when it's obvious you know, that the opposite is true. And now the, the marketing messages, the marketing messages going out for the COVID-19 vaccines are absolutely either misleading or false information, yeah. provably. All you have to do is, um, you know, put them side by side. You put the CDC marketing message of the vaccine next to the the FDA or the um, what Pfizer or Moderna says about the product or what the NIH says about the product. Complete opposite. Yeah. You know, and so people are waking up to that. They're seeing there's a difference between public health marketing messages and the actual science. Absolutely. And, you know, um, so that's that's sort of the gift of COVID. Again, I hate anybody's been harmed by either COVID-19 or the response to COVID-19. Yeah. And, you know, you know, globally, they are saying that the response to COVID-19 is going to kill far more people than SARS-CoV-2 ever. Yeah. No, I have no doubt. I think some people are waking up to the reality. So you, if you turn on the news, it almost doesn't matter what channel you're on. This message is the same. More positive tests, more people are dying of COVID, and uh, you need to get your vaccine. That's that's just the message. It doesn't matter what where you look. Yeah. Think about it. People who are giving you the news are not scientists. Mm -hmm. They are simply reading a teleprompter. Who's putting that information on that teleprompter for them? because it's very consistent, right? It doesn't matter yeah. if you're on Fox or S CNN or any other channel, they get the same teleprompter. Where's it coming from? It has to be coming from somebody who stands to gain if they can create fear. Not only does fear sell, so it's great for ratings, but fear will drive the population to give up their freedom and mm -hmm. to do something they wouldn't otherwise do. And yeah. 
But because it's everywhere, you start to think, well, it must be real, mm-hmm. right? And, and I'm not saying COVID's not real. Don't, don't misinterpret me. It is absolutely real. I had a friend almost die. Uh, this is a, it's a nasty one, but it's no big deal for kids. It's really no big deal for most adults. If you've got your vitamin D level optimal, you're eating well, you're reducing stress, you're getting your sleep, your immune system is robust and resilient, you'll be fine. Absolutely mm-hmm. fine. And yeah, don't get me yeah. started. <laughs> like you started off on the biome and, and the mask, <laughs> the mask thing will get me in trouble if I tell you I don't think masks are doing any good. But you know, when I see people with their masks on and they're fiddling all the time and because they're irritating, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, the, there's no study that really looks at real world data going forward that shows that, you know, using cloth masks or even these surgical masks uh, in the real world, yeah. Yeah. prospectively studied that it's yeah. making any difference. It may even be making things worse. So in my, oh, in yeah. my practice, I, I have so many alternatively minded families. They don't believe in masks. They do believe in the biome and the importance of getting exposed to things they're still doing great. Like I said mm-hmm. at the beginning, only four yeah. kids in my entire practice of over 10,000 patients have had mild COVID symptoms. Nobody hospitalized, nobody in the ER. Uh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, and I agree with you. And I've read all the studies on both sides about masks. And what I really want, I want a real world study. When I go down to the grocery store and I see people touching and moving and lifting and all of that, I want, I mean, how do we set that up? Can we do a study with somebody <laughs> and they swab everybody, check the air around, swab their faces and, the, yep. and that melon they just touched in the right. phone and, oh, and, yeah. and people it's, are wearing them into the bathroom. Yeah. It, the the whole see, thing is nonsensical the way it's being rolled out oh now we're supposed to double mask that'll make a difference yeah double Um, mask. you know i like to watch sports well at least basketball and i'm watching these players so so they sit on the bench with their mask on and then they go out and they just bang into each other i mean they're 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 touching each other and i mean body fluids and blood everywhere here and there and um everybody's doing okay (laughs) yeah okay yeah they're testing every day but you know come on uh Yeah. yeah. So, so what I would say to anybody though, if you're fearful, take a walk in the forest, just, just get out in the forest, take your mask off and go for a hike and you pay attention to what you're sensing in nature and you will realize everything's okay. In fact, mm-hmm. everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I just want people to remember that. I think if you spend your time on TV, turn it off. Get, that, that is just mostly propaganda. If something really important is happening, Somebody will tell you. Yeah, that's ex- I love that advice. That is excellent advice. And it's so important for our kids today who've been yeah. locked in and they tend to be addicted to, you know, the video games and everything on their computers and phones anyway. Yeah. So get out there as much as you can in the real world. Oh, gosh, world. the screen time issue is so worrisome to me. You know, as a pediatrician pre-COVID, I was really becoming aware of the massive increases in ADD, ADHD, anxiety, and depression. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, you know becoming very clear that it was related to screens mm-hmm. and our brains are just not intended to have that kind of constant input that you get when you're on your phone or you're playing video games. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so we were already in trouble before COVID. Then we lock kids up at home and tell them they have to do all their schooling online. It, I mean, it's just no wonder that our kids are suffering. 
Yeah. And they, they don't have access to the sports. And if they yeah. are um, doing the sports, they're told to mask up. Did you hear that there were five kids in a track meet recently in Washington state who passed out? They were running long distance with masks on Oh gosh. because our governor says that you have to exercise with masks on. I mean, this is criminal. It, it's, 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 insanity. Criminal. <laughs> it's insanity. It's insanity. I do CrossFit and we're supposed to wear masks because of our governor's uh, rulings. Uh, and so we do, but we're, we're, <laughs> We're wearing masks that uh, are pretty worthless. Yeah. <laughs> they well, don't regulate what kind of mask. I mean, it, it makes no sense to put on a, a, a really tight, well-fitting mask that, that filters effectively. Therefore, mm-hmm. you can't breathe. Right. Uh, so you wouldn't be able to exercise. And if you're not exercising, yeah. what kind of health problems are you now creating? Yeah. There, there's a new study that, you know, you can tell when people are behind this in order to just perpetuate the fear and the mask right. use. And there is a new study that came out that said that they think that masks might work partly by keeping a lot of moisture in front of your face <laughs> so that you're bringing it in and you're and it's helping um, lubricate your mucous membranes. Oh well, you know, we, we do know that optimal humidity does help prevent infection because if you've got very healthy mucous membranes, you're hydrated properly, the air has proper humidity, that does decrease infection. However, trapping your own breath and you're right in front of your face and this, you know, that is not necessarily healthy, humid air. And then secondly, in order to do the study and show it increased, they did it in a lab and they put foam rubber around the outside of the mask to get a proper seal. Oh, wow. Oh, that's real world condition. Yeah, everybody's <laughs> going around with these <laughs> seals. Well, and, you know, you mentioned people are always touching and adjusting their masks. So you're shopping, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And somebody is just, let's say they had COVID. And, you know, you've got a bit of a stuffy nose or sore throat. And you rub your nose and then you touch the melons and the avocados but you don't like that when you move on next person comes along touches that same piece of fruit catches the COVID under their hands now you inoculate it yourself because your mask is annoying you have to keep adjusting it uh we just don't know the extent no, of the harm no. we're doing with masks they aren't doing real world studies no they're they're really not and you know um in the last few minutes of our of uh, our interview of you dr paul today i want to move on to um a pretty serious subject here but i want you to hopefully give uh, parents hope when we are hearing of children who got COVID, who get it very severely they're said to get something called multi-system inflammatory syndrome are you familiar with that term Yes, it's, it's very much like Kawasaki's uh, disease, mm-hmm. which I'm very familiar with. Uh, I have not lost a child to Kawasaki's in my career. In fact, I'm pretty sure I have not even had a single case of Kawasaki's that resulted in the aortic dilation and damage to the aorta, which then causes lifelong heart problems. Uh, but that's one of the things it can do. Uh, it's also called mucocutaneous lymph node syndrome. So this new syndrome that they've described related to potentially related to COVID-19 uh, is sort of along those lines. It's an inflammatory thing that happens at, you know, in the blood vessels. Uh, it, it can hit all body systems and organs. And that makes sense to what we've seen with certain adults who end up 
getting in real trouble with COVID, that this virus has the ability through that inflammatory, we were talking earlier about tumor necrosis factor and inflammatory mediators being able to create this massive inflammation that can affect multiple body systems. So I think in rare cases, it's likely this is happening. Uh, what's the literature that you're seeing? Um, well, yeah, and so I was looking at this one particular, where do I, I, I apologize, I can't quickly find where my, oh, it's a JAMA article about it, and, um, but they did say it's rare, they said that there's been 2,060 cases in 48 states, including um, Puerto Rico, there have been 30 deaths, the, the ages range from about uh, infants to 20, but the average age is nine, they don't know uh, factors to make you predisposed to this, but it seems to be tied to obesity and it's usually older children. Hmm. So there's, we know that like um, the spike protein binds in the gut. I mean, the, that's where the ACE2 receptors are in the gut. And I can imagine, you know, and, and then vitamin D levels are very much tied People who um, are obese tend to have low vitamin D. I forget, you know, the, exactly why that happens, but it seems like all the susceptibilities that adults have to to poor disease is the same thing that some of these children are having. Maybe if you've got gut dysbiosis, you've got other things going on. Mm -hmm. Those could be the factors. But it did say um, most children fully recover. Right. And, and so you know, early intervention in, in anything. So early intervention, get, get these nutrients to children immediately. If they get, if you do get sick, don't give them Tylenol. Right. Um, sure. And, you know, there's always, like we have discussed before, ivermectin, it, it is a drug. I prefer the nutrients, but there is this amazing drug that is shown to be very powerful in just shutting down because it'll bind with the protein, spike protein and shut down the infection process. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, vitamin D is super important. Another interesting thing with COVID that, that might be slightly applicable since this syndrome is a hitting older kids, which is a little different than Kawasaki's, uh, melatonin is a, not only an antioxidant, a natural compound we make in our body, uh, but it also helps reduce binding to ACE receptors. And we know that melatonin levels drop off fairly significantly starting in your teens. Mm. So they're highest in your you know, preschool and early school years. By 20, your melatonin levels are like half or less than what they were as a child. Well, you hit on something. What were we talking about earlier? Screen addiction? <laughs> okay, right. So we've got kids who are up all night. Yeah, they're not. Making and they're exposed to the light. They're not wearing the doing the blue blockers or the, yeah. I mean, my son's got the glasses so he can do the blue blocker thing. And sure. so their melatonin levels at an earlier age are really suffering. Plummeting. Their circadian yep. rhythms are all off. Yep. So you might have hit on a really important reason why it's older children that are susceptible to this. So if you add they're overweight because they're not out doing sports and they're looking at their computers too much. So their melatonin levels are down. Right. It sounds like the, a perfect storm for having yeah. a bad there, reaction. There are definitely natural things one can do. Uh, and, uh, you know, supplementing vitamin D, even in kids, a little bit of melatonin, you wouldn't take massive doses, but one to three milligrams, that mm -hmm. sort of range. I'm not, you know, check with your provider. I'm not giving any medical advice on this show, but just from experience, I'm a pediatrician who's used melatonin, vitamin C, 
these are things that help the immune system. Remember, it's a healthy immune system that keeps you healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And all these lifestyle factors are so important. Um, very, very. Somebody recently was writing, asked a surgeon who was retiring early and said, why are you retiring early? And he said, well, he was just so frustrated because sometimes the best medicine is doing nothing mm -hmm. or or having to just make a lifestyle change, which put, takes some effort. People don't want that. They want a right. pill or they want yep. a surgery. They want somebody else to do it quickly for them. That's it. It's done. Yeah. And that's just not health and healing. And he was just too frustrated to actual practice medicine. Yeah. You know, and I think changing your lifestyle is probably one of the most difficult things there is to do. Right. I, I'd like to make a comment on that sort of uh, hit me recently that your health is actually in your hands. And when we turn that over, whether you turn it over to the doctor or the CDC or the talking heads on TV, and you let them tell you what to do, you're, you're giving up your power, mm -hmm. okay? And, and your personal power is what helps you remain healthy. So take it back, don't listen to the talking heads on TV and realize that you have absolute control of your destiny. You wanna eat right, eat healthy, supplement vitamin D because it's just impossible if you live in the Northern hemisphere, certain distance from the equator to get enough from the sun. We're just not out in the sun with our clothes off enough <laughs> and um, get your rest and reduce stress and, and screens are stress. So that's what just bugs me about keeping kids isolated on screens to learn. It's doing them a huge disservice, but take back your power. That's your health will return or you can protect your health by being in charge and not giving it up. Not Don't give up your power to the fear mongering talking heads on TV or the CDC or public health officials who frankly, they're, they're conflicted themselves. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And those are great parting words to leave our listeners with, Dr. Paul. Thank you so much for joining me today on an Informed Life Radio. I hope to have you back again soon. Oh, and tell everybody real quick before we go about your show. Well, so I have started a new show. If you go to doctorsandscience.com, you can sign up for my new show called Against the Wind, Doctors and Science Under Fire. So the website is doctorsandscience.com. My intention with this show is to highlight science that you're not getting in the mainstream that's important, that's just not being covered. Cover doctors and scientists who are under fire for speaking the truth and trying to get the truth out there. There's a lot of censorship going on. And we will also be highlighting vaccine injury because that tends to be swept under the carpet. And I think it's time for people to wake up and realize, oh, wow, that's real. That's what helped make me a better doctor when I went from my head to my heart in the realization that vaccine injury is real. So then you can start weighing your decisions from a place of understanding and real information and knowledge and not from a fear-based position. So the show is every other Tuesday coming up this next Tuesday will be our second show and go ahead and watch the first. We covered my story and my recent publication in that first show and that information is all available uh, for you to click on at doctorsandscience.com. Thanks okay. for having me, Bernadette. Oh, you're welcome, Dr. Paul. Thanks for being on. We'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure. All righty then, I think I am back live and my wonderful savior today, Eric, will let me know if everything is still going all right. Um, I love Dr. Paul. He is so precious. He's been on an amazing journey 
And, you know, anybody sort of new, I don't know if I have any listeners out there who, who are fairly new to the idea that, you know, we really need some changes in how vaccines are looked at, how they're studied and, and, and all of that. Think about, think about how maligned anybody is who dares to speak up about vaccines. Somebody with a, a great career like Dr. Paul, MD, you know, very thriving career. Think about uh, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, uh, Wakefield years ago, a research scientist. Um, think about Robert F. Kennedy Jr., brilliant career, legal career, environmental um, uh, guy, you know, and all of these, so many people at the pinnacle of their careers were exposed to information that something is wrong in the vaccine industry, in vaccine regulation, with the vaccine products. And they had that deep character within that just could not stay silent. They, they knew, all, everybody who enters this conversation on the side of being critical knows they're gonna be attacked, knows if you've got a, a good career, you may lose it, but it's, it's some, it's one of those things once you know, you can't unknow. And, you know, many of us who have already experienced and witnessed um, vaccine injury, we can just step away. We don't have to choose those products, but in our hearts, we can't just step away because we know people will be reading that marketing information that I talked about earlier and not knowing the science that does not support it. And so that's why we do this. That's why Informed Choice Washington exists. That's why Children's Health Defense exists and, and why Dr. Paul is doing what he's doing and so many other wonderful people. So um, we are empowered, each and every one of us. Our health, our children's health is within our power. And the more we learn, the more we know about what constitutes health, what where real health comes from, the less fearful we are of navigating our choices in the world and the less fearful we are of disease and the marketing messages coming at us. So I encourage you to just keep exploring. I haven't reminded you in a while of the website, healthyimmunitynow.org, healthyimmunitynow.org. It's a great website with all the different effective treatments and preventive protocols for um, COVID-19. I encourage you to go explore that. Uh, continue to go on this journey of discovery so that you can live an informed life. And with that, I'm going to say, Goodbye, and thank you for tuning into an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.